The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They're all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The world is a lot different these days, and the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are ready to help you safely navigate it. From helping you figure out the conscientious destinations to helping you figure out entry protocols for different countries, the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are there for you. Looking to work abroad for an extended period of time? Looking to attend virtual school from a remote location? These are all things that Blue Pineapple Travel can help you do. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in their ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach would be glad to meet with you and to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find those good folks at www.slayrx.com. Are you needing a pleasant spark to take your endurance game to the next level? Are you needing an all-natural, high-quality, customized hydration powder with or without sugar to stave off cramping and dehydration? Are you in need of an effective all-in-one fuel to slay your endurance efforts? Look no more. SlayRx. SlayRx has a really good line of products to serve our most pleasant exhaustion podcast listeners. Let's start with Michelle's favorite, Spark Plug, which replaces sports gel and gross post-race trips to the Porta Johns. It's a poppin' electrolyte powder in small, easily carried tubes. There's also an all-in-one endurance fuel. It has all of your electrolytes, clean fuel, and for no extra cost, your essential amino acids with or without caffeine. And it costs about one-third as much as other brands' combo rocket fuels. Finally, they have my favorite, SlayRx Hydrate Powder, which comes with or without sugar and varying strengths of electrolytes based on your individual needs. They can find those individual needs on the free quiz online at SlayRx.com or with in-person testing like Patrick and I did at their headquarters on podcast episode number 114. Hydrate is the fuel that I use during the Blue Ridge Relay this year, and I recommend it for all of you as well. SlayRx products are 100% natural, come in great flavors, are vegan friendly, and the Hydrate Light is keto friendly. They've all been well researched and developed by a UGA Foo scientist who's also an Ironman athlete. The products are tested by the pros and endorsed by your fellow endurance athletes and hardworking folks in the community. The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayRx.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT22 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITL Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and SlayRx. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a father of twin boys, and I'm a college professor. My name is Michelle Frank. I'm also an endurance athlete in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a mom to three girls, and I'm a CPA. And my name is Eric Hall. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Raleigh, North Carolina, father to three college students and a husband to a beautiful wife, Melissa. Michelle, are we going to jump directly into the race that we did this past weekend? 
I, I want to hear all about it. <laughs> Are we, we going to? I mean, should we should we jump directly to the finish of the race and talk no. about all the f bombs that I was throwing when no. I when I crossed the finish line ultimately? I think it's better not to... to talk about your inappropriate response. <laughs> we can talk about the, the angriest that it. I have gotten in all of 2022 at the finish line of the Lookout Mountain 18 miler. <laughs> we can talk about uh, me completely making an ass of myself in front of Michelle's friend, Eric, who crews a lot of her uh, her long distance trail races here. Um yeah. yeah, I don't think he is actually going to wipe his ass with the shirt that you threw at him, but I think he appreciated <laughs> the shirt. <laughs> I, did, I didn't throw my shirt at him. Is that what you, you said? You threw it on the ground. I threw it on the ground, yes. I wasn't taking the shirt home from that awful and, race. And he picked it up, and you told mm -hmm. him to feel free to wipe your ass with it. Oh, nice. Yeah, I didn't remember saying that exactly, but that is an appropriate thing to say, given my state of the mind at that moment. That is um, never an appropriate so. thing to say. Fair, fair, fair. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's talk a little about the race here. So so um, we uh, we both ran, Michelle and I both ran the Lookout Mountain 18 miler this past weekend. There was a 50 miler as well, but we ran the the, the 18 miler um, and uh, it was an OK race. Um, uh, Michelle, you want to talk about your race first or should I talk about mine first? I'm happy to just give a small recap. I ran at lookout about eight maybe 10 weeks ago there's mm -hmm. you know this loop i think it's big daddy's loop i don't know i'd wanted to run it for a while so just drove up early and ran it it was about 12 miles came back while i was running it i took a really hard fall and ended up straining um like my mcp joint and my thumb so i wore a brace on my wrist for a little while every day that i had to braid one of my daughter's hair, my <laughs> hand hurt. And ironically, it really just stopped hurting last week. So it took about eight weeks to heal, which is what uh, they told me it would take when I when I went and had it looked at. So I guess now that I was healed uh, from that, it was time to go back to look out. And it was just as hard as I remembered it to be. Um, it was different than Shut In and different than Pine Mountain, I think, in the sense that it just had this huge descent, you know, it was kind of runnable. And then you really just went down, uh, I don't know what, to 2,500 feet kind of in one shot. Mm -hmm. So I felt like it was pretty good. It was wet. It's rocky. Um, a lot of it's on a ridge. The weather was good. It was, you know, mid thirties at the start. And it was actually much warmer when I got out there than I thought it would be. Um, I had too. to take some time to take off my hydration vest and take off a layer about six and a half miles in. Cause I felt I was just losing way too much sweat way too early in the race. So it was pretty good. I thought, um, women there were way more competitive than I thought they would be. They ran with full bladders. They didn't stop at any of the aid stations. They were just, you know, kind of on a mission. Um, and I felt like it was a pretty good run. I got, I think eight women passed me on the descent. <laughs> Just, I don't know how these women do it. I mean, not only do they pass you, but they're out of sight and within like 10 seconds, they're just, mm -hmm. they're flying down the hills. So, and it was pretty good. The had about three miles after, you know, five miles down or whatever it was. And then we climbed up out of the valley. Um, it was a shorter, steeper climb than the descent that took us down there. But before we climbed out, we had about three miles just on a gravel path, which, I thought it was super runnable. I thought I was running really fast, but I think my miles were 
it was like 950 pace or something, <laughs> but I felt like I was like, oh yeah, I'm running eight minute miles now. Um, and then after the long climb out, it ended pretty abruptly. The last mile was really fast. If you took the correct turn to the finish line, which <laughs> I did, <laughs> uh, but I wasn't race except for two people, except for the lead two yeah. people did. Yes. There's a little yeah. foreshadowing there. Um, <laughs> but I, but I will say that my experience two months ago left me physically unable to walk for like five days down the stairs. And this time I was a little bit sore. I, I turned my ankle a little bit. So I have a slight kind of grade one sprain. It hasn't stopped anything this week in terms of mileage and stuff, but I was really pleasantly surprised that I was sore, but I wasn't nearly as sore as I was when I did a similar, but shorter run there um, about two months ago. So I don't know. Good. I think overall it was just good prep, another good, good kind of different type of trail race in the bucket of fall experiences. So yeah. Good, good. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So like you said, it kind of rolled for that first five or so miles um, and it wasn't terribly technical. Um, and then there was a pretty, pretty steep, short downhill right around five miles that was kind of technical and yeah. then a short, steep uphill and then a long, gradual downhill over the course of five miles before yeah. you got to like the three miles that was down there in the valley. And so it was on the short technical downhill um, that I was running in third and the two guys in front of me got away from me basically on that short technical downhill, a lot of hairpin turns, switchbacks, that kind of thing going down that hill. Um, and then, um, by the time we got to the, to the descent, um, to the long five mile descent, um, they were kind of out of sight. And so I was running on my own, um, um, from that point on, um, there was an unmarked turn there where I and lots of people kind of, uh, lost a little bit of time, but it was not that big a deal. Um, and uh, ran along the, uh, the the valley floor, like you said, and then got to that final climb. There was about 1,400 feet of ascent in the last 5K of this race, um, or the last 5K of this course, maybe I should put it that way. Um, and so uh, just kind of knowing that was coming, I had saved a little bit and, and, and began doing the climb. And fairly early on in the climb, I suddenly spot one of the two guys that was still in front of me and I catch him and I pass him um, and running on and on and on. I can see the footprints on the ret the rocks because <laughs> you would step in water and then step on a rock. I can see the footprints of the guy who's in first, even though I can't see him. And so I know he's not too far away. So I kind of kept running and, and, and tried to keep the pedal of the metal. And with about half mile left on the course. So knowing that we were getting close to the end of the race. I look up and there's the guy in first. Um, and so I, I dig deep and I pass him and I get on by and my heart rate is, you know, at 180. <laughs> um, and and I'm looking at the flags on the course and I'm following the flags on the course. And and I just kind of keep on running and go up this other and, and eventually come to realize that, like, I, I, I must have missed a turn. We're not where we're supposed to be. The race was supposed to be over by now. Um and, and what it was is that the course was essentially this lead in from the start finish line and then the loop. And then you're supposed to take a right to go back onto the lead in to the finish line. Um, and we finished the loop and the race director hadn't come in and picked up any of the flags from the start um, to direct us to go back towards the start finish back onto the lead in. And so we just kind of kept going straight on the loop and essentially started a second loop. <laughs> and and so how did that make you feel so not great um 
And so so I, I turn around and start running back. And as we're running back towards the start, me and the other guy that I had passed, the race director's out there picking up the flags. And and, and he looks at me and he goes, goes, sorry about that. Somebody was supposed to have picked these up. And I was like, yeah, you were supposed to have picked them up. Um, and then by the time we get back to that turn, there's a volunteer there standing there directing people to take the right turn and to go on to lead in. And so people are all making that turn at that point. Right. So, um, and so, I yeah, thinking... I was, I was so mad. I was so mad. Um, but the reason why I was so mad is because like I had worked so hard and, and had in my mind dramatically moved into the finish so close to the end of the race. And this is my last race of 2022. And it would have been such a cool way to finish the year. And it didn't happen. So I, I keep thinking or or wondering, do you think what happened is the third place guy got to the finish line and they thought he won. And then he told them no way there's at least one or two people ahead of me. So the third place guy was, is a local guy. Um, And so he actually knew um, but he got up to he got up to that term where they now had stationed a volunteer towards the finish. Um, and and she says something like, way to go. You're winning or something like that. And he actually stopped cold and said, I'm not winning. Where are the other yeah. two guys? Um, and, and she's like, no, you're first. And he's like, I'm not. And he kind of trotted it in at that point, but kind of in confusion um but but knowing that something had gone wrong um and then i saw him at the finish line just real briefly um because i crossed the finish line and and just started like pull off my hat and pull off my gloves and, and was cussing and kept on saying i was following the effing flags um because i was because they were still there when i went there um and then got back to the car and 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 essentially hopped in the car and just left um ultimately when the when the results were posted and corrected and everything it said that i finished fourth um, which whatever, um, I, looking on, looking on training peaks, I added 1.4 miles. Um, and I took about 12 minutes and about, about 12 minutes of addition there. Um, so yeah, obviously That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, think I mean, this just, this just sets you up for a phenomenal, <laughs> uh, race on in January. Maybe let's hope so. Didn't, let's hope didn't so. we just talk about this or you guys talked about this, I think in the last podcast where, you know, missing the mark actually sets you up yeah. for better success on yeah. the, you know, the, the big one. Yeah. So uh, like near, near, near misses actually are, are more motivating mm-hmm. than, than, than actually accomplishing it or, I think, or missing a, it by a lot. I think, uh, an email to the race director, you know, like an apology and then a thank you might From be appropriate me? yeah oh, hell no no you're, you're just you're just trying to get me fired up again no no no, 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 no. he's trolling you bitch. exactly exactly um, yeah no no definitely not definitely not i uh i yeah i'm i'm not still mad about it i was definitely mad about it for the rest of that day and like i said i i i, I live a good life in that uh i don't have a whole lot of things that make me angry day in and day out. Um, I, I recognize my privilege in that regard. Um, and and I'm also a pretty even keeled guy. But one of the reasons why I'm so even keeled is because I do pour a lot of emotion into endurance sports. Um, and, and just also in the same way that like whenever somebody gets angry, you can never look at it in a vacuum. 
like you always have to look at it in a much broader context. Like if somebody yells at you in traffic, it's not because of what you did. It's because what the last 10 people did. It's because the day that the person has had up to that point. Right. Um, and so for me, the reason why I got so emotional about it and so angry about it is because in my head, I had built up so much. Like when this guy first came into sight and I'm like, I'm going to win this race. I can catch this guy. You know, I had like, it, it, it was the falling off of that that made me so mad <laughs> um, as opposed to just taking a wrong turn. Right. If it had been the difference between fifth and 10th, I would have been like, well, that sucked. That was stupid. Um, but it was the difference between winning and not winning. Um, and it was a win that I hadn't necessarily gone there to get, but I thought it was gonna be a really cool way to finish 2022 as it turned out. Um, but it wasn't. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm over it now, except to say that I'm not going to say good things about this race company anymore. Um, I had said good things about them in the past. I'm not going to. Um, there's another one of their races that I've had on my radar for a long time. It's not on my radar anymore. <laughs> um, and so, so um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, to certainly apply the grudge in that way, but I'm not actively <laughs> mad like I was for the remainder of the day on Saturday after the race. I think I, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast how if there's anything that you can do really well, it's I can uh, hold a grudge. Hold yeah, a grudge. grudge. Yeah, I, I I can I can calmly hold a grudge pretty well. Yeah, there are there are companies I have not frequented in years and years and years, and I don't make a big deal about it, but I just very quietly go about not buying their products. Um, and so I think this race company, at least for the time being, um, is is going to fall into that category. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is only the fourth time I've ever gotten lost in a race. Um, there's at least one person I know that thinks that I get lost like all the time. Um, and I don't, <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I, I've only been lost in a race four times. Um, one of those, two of those times were the same race, um, like on, in different years. And so, um, and in pretty much every one of those occasions and every one of those occasions, I was at the lead of the race. Um, and, and on most of those occasions, um, somebody told me wrong or, or there was some sort of nebulous marking or something else like that. But, um, but yeah, so all told, you know, how, how many hundreds of races have I run in my life? I've, I've only been lost in four of them. It's not bad. Um, not bad. But anyway, what shoes did you wear, Michelle? I wore the same shoes as you again, George. So we both wore the endorphin edges. Were you happy with them? Are you, are you thinking these are still your mountain mist shoes? I am going to plan to wear them. I did do something a little bit different this time in that I took out the uh, Saucony insert and put in a custom orthotic that I typically rotate in and out of every shoe that I wear. Um, I'm not going to do that again. The orthotic itself and literally the material and anybody who has a Atlanta foot and ankle orthotic might be able to attest to this. It's very slippery, just like the actual, literally the, just the top of it. So I'm sure I could spray something on it or, you know, change socks or something. But I also think that this is a four millimeter drop shoe. And I think the thickness in the back of the orthotic places my, the heel of my foot a little bit too high to sit in the shoe the way, the way that it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a little bit of a regret of mine. Uh, I just felt like I was sliding around in them a bit more than I was at Pine Mountain, mm -hmm. but you know, I do think in, in some ways running hard 
uh, running on these trails with a plate, it is helpful. I, I think it's, you know, I've been sore, really kind of sore after the last two races, but not, not as bad as I thought I would be. So I am also aware, you know, having, uh, spent some time with a PT this week, just to kind of get my ankle assessed of the difference in, you know, range that you have going down a hill. If you're wearing like an eight to 10 millimeter drop versus a four millimeter drop, he put me through this whole, you know, squatting and ankle mobility thing when you wear a lower drop shoe. And we really are really limited in this like four millimeter drop shoe, um, in terms of ankle mobility and, and navigating, you know, the more technical trails. But that being said, I think it needs to be worn with the factory insert, at least for me. So Ex explain that to me a little bit, a little bit more. Um, so, so you, you okay, went well, to, a, I mean, this I, is... I, hadn't, I hadn't heard you say it. you went to a PT this week and, and you did a mobility test and it found yeah. that you have less mobility with a lower drop shoe. For sure. If you stand, you know, if you stand up and you get, even if you just put the back of your feet on a pillow, just something simple, or even just stand on your tippy toes a little bit and you squat down, like you can squat much further down with your heel elevated than you can if you're standing flat footed or the difference between like a 10 millimeter drop shoe and a four millimeter drop shoe, you know, you're six millimeters more, your heel is six millimeters more flat or parallel with the ground than if you have a higher drop shoe. Right. Um, so he was just showing why, you know, where I'm sore and the, the effects of it on, you know, the other part of the tendons and ligaments in the legs in turn of just in terms of supporting and helping mobilize the ankle. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't great. Um, is, is that, that, is that because, okay, because I feel like one of the the arguments that people make for lower drop shoes is that you're, you're you do move more naturally in lower drop shoes. Um, and, and that would tend to suggest that you would actually be more stable with a lower drop because you're moving more naturally. Right. Um, and, and you have much more range in a higher drop though. Is that just you though? Or is that everybody? I mean, that's gotta be everybody. If you, if you just test it yourself, like I, if you have a piece of foam or just something right. that you can elevate your heel and then, you know, make it less or try it flat footed and you just squat down, you can see, you know, how much further and more comfortable you can squat fully with your heel raised higher. And I don't think it matters. I know it doesn't matter as much if you're running roads or you're running really up, but when you're going down, sure, your foot's in almost like a, well, nobody can see my hand, but <laughs> a point. You're, 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 you're pointing, you're pointing your toe. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily pointing your toe, but but you you're, just but need, you're, you're more you you're more in so that squat much, position. Yeah, yeah, you need so much more from the entire lower part of your leg from the knee down to stabilize your ankle on the technical downhill. The lower the drop of the shoe is, I would say. Hmm. Um, so I have a lot of referral pain coming up the side from what I did to my ankle, and again, it's really very minor, and it's I'm not stopping running or dropping mileage or anything, but you know, it is noticeable. And I, and I think part of that for me was just switching the Saucony insert to the orthotic and I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> um, I just, the, the more secure I feel in the shoes, the better. So. Sure. Sure. 
Yeah, no. So like you said, I wore the endorphin edges as well. Um, and and it's going to be my mountain mist shoe. Um, the fact that it does have that lower drop, it was a little bit problematic for me since I have Achilles issues, you Your know, Achilles, yeah. um, and, and that's and that, that's that's my that was my hold up in buying the shoe in the first place. Um, but, but I went ahead and, and rolled the dice and did it. And, and my Achilles was hurting pretty good, um, on the rest of the day, Saturday and Sunday. Now, to be fair, that's at least partly because I changed as quickly as I could. I threw my, my race t-shirt into the street and, and I stormed <laughs> off, um, without doing any sort of cool down. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, flipping birds and dropping up bombs and and no I wouldn't have been flipping birds but 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 that so that's at least partly my own fault is that that I didn't go through any sort of cool down protocol um and so so I think I was pretty sore and including in my Achilles as a result of 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 that um but you know that 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 is something that's given me pause and then the, you're saying that that I'm more unstable going downhill um with a lower drop shoe that that obviously it's so, something I'm going to Google as soon as we're done with this podcast. <laughs> here's two things. One, I think if anybody has any questions about what I just said, uh, I'm a big fan of Dustin at Reach Physical Therapy. He just branched off and started his own clinic. So here in Atlanta. Here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here in Atlanta, um, right off, right near the stadium, Windy Hill Road. You can reach out to him to get clarification. Don't ask me for clarification. I think I struggled enough to explain it as it is. The other thing is I'm wearing, in my mind, I'm wearing whatever shoes you guys are wearing <laughs> because I just want it to be like, when we recap this race in January, I want to have as level of a playing field of an experience <laughs> as possible. So some of it is I'm totally, I, I'm in on these shoes because you guys are in on these shoes. Well, I um, was going to say, so Eric, are these your shoes or are the endorphin edges your shoes for, for Mountain Miss as well? I'm 75% that these are my shoes. All right. All right. This would be the first, and this would be the first time that we have all, well, raced in the same race. I know. And the first time, I, I guess that that goes without saying that we would all be wearing the same shoe, but this is actually the first time that we might actually agree on the same well, shoe other than the Adidas, I guess. They, where is your other 25% right now? The Adidas. Hmm. What? Well, it kind of depends on the conditions. If it's the conditions you had last year, it's not really a question. But mm-hmm. if it's not those conditions, I, I've been running pretty long runs in the Adidas, and I don't. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't wear the Adidas regardless of the conditions, just because <laughs> the course is so technical. And there's so many rocks, um, so many rocks that 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 I, I, I thought so many times last year during the race, and the conditions la- the last year earlier this year during during mountain mist were awful certainly but i i was like i need a beefier shoe i need like the rocks just i felt like beat up my my feet so much particularly when they had ice on them (laughs) yeah i think the other thing i've run i've run a 50 miler in my solomons and if it's that bad i mean if it's rainy sloppy snowy i would probably wear my solomons because i trust those more than i trust the edges the speed but, cross yeah that's interesting we will see it's, it's not a shoe that i would recommend running long distances in but if it's the difference between you know falling on my face and cracking my head open mm-hmm. 
and feeling more confident, which is, you know, we've talked about this. I did a review of that shoe and I said, that's what it's for. It's, mm-hmm. I call it my, you know, big blue paddles is cause it's, that's, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Right. but I, I am certainly considering, I know you two are laughing about it. Um, if it is snowy and I decide to wear the endorphins, I might put a couple of hobnails in the bottom of both of them. I wouldn't mm-hmm. cover the whole bottom of the shoe, but I would put a couple of hobnails in them. A couple of spikes. Bring me some of those nails. <laughs> yeah. I, and I might I, just I, carry the kit. And if yeah. it, if we're out there and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of ice here, because they just screw right in the bottom of your shoe. So, so I, I okay. So, and that, that's, a, that's something I'm not going to do. I'm not going to be putting spikes in the bottom of my shoe. But if it is icy and you put spikes in the bottom of yours and we're wearing the same shoes otherwise, that will provide a good point of contrast when we are, are reviewing the race it, in February. And they're not spikes in the sense of what you think of as a track spike or a cross country spike. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're actually more of a flat top. Um, you know, it's, it's, they're designed for cars. So mm-hmm. they're designed for car tires. So it's a little different. So, mm-hmm. but I would put them in a recessed portion. So they're not, you know, they're not sticking out of the, the, mm-hmm. the high, the, the lowest, highest, whatever portion of the shoe I'd have right. them to where when you need it, you get it. So. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Very interesting. You, if, if Eric does that, it's Eric, the engineer there, you would be crazy not to do that. I'm for sure doing me? that. Please bring me those things. Michelle, there's sure. no question that the three of us are crazy. I, <laughs> bring that into the discussion. <laughs> right? Yeah. We, we, we crossed that threshold long, long ago. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but but no, I, I wouldn't do it just because I wouldn't want to to do something brand new on race day. Like I just, Oh, I'm not doing brand new on race day. So yeah. that's, that's the difference here. Now, Michelle, you'd be doing something brand new on race day and trusting me. That's I do appreciate your level of trust in me. <laughs> yeah, I w- I wouldn't want to do it brand new on race day. That that that's that's my biggest thing. Um, but we will get some some super subarctic temperatures or feels like subarctic temperatures here in uh, in the American South um, over the course of Christmas weekend coming up this weekend. So if you did want to to test some some spikes that are designed to improve your grip on ice. You you might have the opportunity to do that this weekend, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll be out there. Uh, Weather looks cold but clear, so cold but bring clear. It on. Thir- Thirteen degrees. Have fun. Yeah. Oof. Um, very good. Um, let's talk uh, about a couple of other things. Um, going back and just looking at different things that we've talked about here over the course of the last few weeks, and and filling in gaps and and uh, fixing things that, that that we should have mentioned before. Um, we are, of course, reading the book of the quarter, "Running While Black: Finding Freedom in a Sport That Wasn't Built for Us" by Allison Mariella Desir. Um, and so we'll be reviewing that as one of our first couple of podcasts in 2023, which is right here around the corner. Um, next week we're actually going to record our uh, our year end episode, which I look forward to, which will uh, recap our 2022s and talk about our favorite races that we ran and that we watched, and some of our big takeaways from the year, and 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 of course some of our resolutions for for next year for 2023. Um, but anyway, um, we uh, didn't mention, and we should have mentioned and maybe it's telling that we didn't mention and maybe it uh, in some ways helps uh, support the thesis of Alice and Mariella Desir's book um, that we didn't mention a performance from uh, the California International Marathon by Ari Hendricks Roach. Um, she ran uh, 235.39, uh, qualified for the Olympic trials um, under those new tougher standards there um, and became the second fastest U.S. born black woman in the marathon. 
Um, uh, Ari is a coach and athlete in Ferndale, Michigan. Um, she was a collegiate basketball player who didn't start running really until she was in graduate school. Um, her first marathon, it always fascinates me when I read this um, about different people. Her first marathon was a 357. Um, and then... <laughs> And then she just kind of kept on doing them and kept on running and got faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Um, and to where ultimately this past May, uh, she moved to number five on the all time list of U.S. born black women um, uh, by running 242 to finish third at the Bayshore Marathon. Um, and then, like I said, she moved up to number two all time of U.S. born black women at the California International Marathon with her 235.39 qualifying her for the Olympic trials uh, in 2024. Um, by the way, I should mention the fastest ever by a U.S. born black woman is by a Samia Akbar. Uh, she ran 234.14 at the 2006 New York City Marathon. Um, 234.14, like I said, Ari ran 235.39. She's got to be looking at that now, I'm sure. Um, I mean, she's already improved from 357 all the way down to 235. I'm sure she's thinking now, let me take this 235 down to low 234s, 233, or even below, um, and become the fastest ever U.S. born black woman, um, which would be pretty cool, which would be pretty cool. Uh, I must say, I'm always impressed by these Michigan, Minnesota, that whole region right. of runners. Like, they're all just so badass. They just, <laughs> they're, I feel, we have so many amazing runners, you know, from from that area. Um, there just must be something about those Midwest winners that makes one tough cookie. I don't know. <laughs> so, clearly, clearly. Um, I, I'm going to, I started following her on Strava this week. Um, I'm going to reach out to her and see if we can get her on the podcast. I think she'd be an interesting person to talk to, um, not only uh, in the context of, of the book that we're reading for the book of the quarter, um, but also because like I said, I want to know how you go from a 357 to a 235. Um, yeah. I mean, did she finish the 357 and say, I could probably run three hours now? Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Or or did she like cross the finish line? The 357 was like bent over and and wheezing and hacking and doing all the things that we all do at the finish line of a marathon. I mean, I, 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 I just kind of got to know. I want to hear that story. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but congrats to Ari there on, on her performance. Um, speaking of the Olympic trials, um, we talked last week about uh, the Olympic trials and how there was some conflict and some ugliness around USETF's selection of Orlando, given the fact that the committee that was specifically tasked with deciding where those trials were going to go had actually unanimously recommended that they go to Chattanooga. Um, literally, as we were recording and publishing that podcast, um, an article hit Runner's World uh, that shed a little bit more light on the process. Um, Michelle, you want to recap that for us? Yeah, so... Of course, I feel like this happens to us a lot, but we recorded last week on the 16th around 3 p.m. And about two hours later, um, Sarah Lorge Butler followed up her initial article, which, you know, spoke about how Chattanooga was voted on unanimously and then disqualified with more information that um, further explained that USATF disqualified the Chattanooga Marathon trials bid over conflict of interest issues. Um, you know, I mean, first of all, thank you, you know, USOPC for kind of explaining what happened. It, transparency from governing bodies of this sort of stuff is often a lot to ask for. It doesn't seem like too much to ask for, but it's not always, you know, granted. And, and we did get that. 
Um, but it seems as if the whole conflict of interest mess could have really been avoided if, if USATF had dealt with it properly back in August. Uh, Jim Estes, who was a member of the committee, also worked as a consultant for Chattanooga. Um, he disclosed this, you know, right away, um, whatever if it's passive or active disclosure. The point is that he followed the process. Um, he was kept on the committee. And ultimately, um, once, you know, he showed up for a site visit, it was kind of this whole shock. And then he was essentially removed from further, um, you know, further the furthering the process in terms of getting the bid for Chattanooga and his role on the committee. And ultimately what happened is USATF had two choices. It could either like reopen the bidding process or they could go back to Orlando and ask them to make changes to their bid to improve, to improve it. And that's basically what they did. Um, Orlando basically agreed to extensive and very expensive changes in I don't really understand why, because when they did this, they were literally the only viable uh, option. Right, before, but before you, before you make that point, let's make sure it's clear. So, okay. so J Jim Estes, who was on that committee, on the committee that ultimately unanimously recommended Chattanooga, he actually had a conflict of interest because he was heavily involved with the Chattanooga Roadrunners or the name of the, the whatever the name is of the group that was actually putting together the bid there for Chattanooga. Right. So he disclosed that over the summer. And then any time that there was a vote or a discussion inside that committee of uh, the Olympic marathon trials, he recused himself from it. And he was not part of the final vote, part, part of that final unanimous recommendation there. However, it was determined that even though he did that and even though he followed what were supposed to be the conflict of interest protocols, there was nonetheless still a conflict of interest that disqualified Chattanooga. And, and so the U.S. OPC um, decided that, that uh, Chattanooga had to be removed and disqualified, but they didn't tell Orlando that Chattanooga was removed and disqualified. They just went to Orlando and said, hey, can you make a couple of changes? And Orlando did. And then they got it. Uh, I mean, but, but to your yeah. point, Orlando was the only one left standing at that point. Orlando could have said no. And they still would have gotten it because they were the only ones left, right? Yeah, the, the problem was that the USOPC didn't find out about Jim Estes, the conflict of interest and all of that until the actual site visit. So they launched an investigation. When, when, was, when was that? I think it was early October when the site visits were. Okay. Late September, early October. Yeah, we'd have to go back and look. It wasn't that long before, you know, the announcement, six to eight weeks, maybe. Um, so they launched an investigation and then ultimately USATF disqualified Chattanooga. But yeah, by the time they went back to Orlando and asked them to change their bid, Orlando was literally the only viable bid. It was the only option left. Um, mm -hmm. So they asked Orlando to increase their prize money to $600,000 and... I'm sure anybody who's listened to this podcast or follows the sport knows, you know, how in the red Atlanta track club was after an amazing 2020 trials. And just to give you an idea, the prize purse for the 2020 Olympic marathon trials was only $480,000. So Orlando's coming up with another 120,000 for that. 
Um, they asked them to cover hotel rooms for all trials qualifiers for three nights and to provide transportation to and from the airport for athletes. They also asked Orlando for changes to the start and finish line and asked for assurances that no portion of the course would be on Rick Road. And essentially, Orlando agreed to all those changes on October 27th. Um, it seems like through all of this, USATF, USOPC's intention is to make Estes the fall guy here. But really, I think the bigger issue at hand is USATF's inability to handle a conflict of interest issue correctly. <laughs> well, um, and, and, and to me, and I want to hear what Eric has to say, too. To me, too, I also just think it's really kind of crappy that they disqualify one and then they don't tell the other that it's the only one left. Oh, it's um, so dirty. And 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 make them that's, do all of these changes. That's business. So that's yeah. right. that's just how business works, that's, though. That I mean, I, I don't see any problem with that. We we run RFPs at work all the time, and you don't tell the other people that put their proposals in. Oh, by the way, none of the others are qualified. So you can just tell me to pack sand. Mm -hmm. it, that's not how you. That's not how you do business. Yeah. But it, 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 just, it just seems like a really effective way to screw both bids at once. Like we're going to disqualify one, but not tell the other so that the other has to make all these costly changes, even though they're the effective winner. I think you can think about it a different way. We have a process that keeps the pool clean and gets the best product for the athletes. Mm -hmm. The pool got dirty, so... <laughs> And they wanted a better process for the athletes, so they asked for those those mm -hmm. changes. So I, I think at the end of the day, they've I don't think they did it correctly, but I think at the end of the day, they carried out their mission of getting the best, cleanest I site. I, I agree with you on that. And in, and in fact, the stuff that they asked for, that like I said, I think it's kind of crappy that they they cornered Orlando or or duped Orlando into doing all these sorts of things. I do think the stuff they actually asked Orlando to do are good things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, They're good for the athletes. Increase the prize purse. Make sure they have a place to stay while they're there. Give them transport from the airport. Uh, you know, don't have them running on bricks. Um, I, actually, I, yeah, I think all those things are good things. The bricks one, I think, is sort of interesting. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the end product was, was a good thing um, and will probably benefit the, athletes. The question I have is, why do we only have two choices? Mm-hmm. Because and, nobody is willing to do what Atlanta Track Club did and sacrifice their entire organization and spend the next two to three years after the trials trying to come out of a financial hole for hosting the trials. Right. Because USATF puts it all on the bidding city. Right. Who has capital to put into it like this? And that's what, I, that's what I was getting at. I mean, if they want a good product, if they want, and a good product is a, a race that people watch, um, that the athletes you know, participate in and I guess enjoy to, to a degree, or at least feel like they have a, a good chance at having a, a good race. That's their responsibility. And it sounds like they're, like you said, Michelle, and we, we said this last year um, or last go around with Atlanta that they're putting a whole lot on the city. And so the cities don't want to participate. Mm -hmm. And, and when you have us and, and when you get in these situations where you, put out a request for proposals and only two people come back. Yeah. It's all you got. Right. Mm -hmm. And typically one of those sucks and the other one's pretty good. Mm -hmm. That's been my experience. I mean, so. the problem is that the athletes just, they don't win. They don't get 
they never, it's never athletes first, but like you said, it's a business. I mean, it, as long as there's even one bid, USATF won't uh, transfer the burden of cost from the host city to themselves. And my fear is like, I think we talked about it a little bit is if we don't even have one bid, then we might lose our trials qualification system altogether. And I think most of us agree that, that we like that top three on the day, you know, versus having a committee pick the Olympic team. So to speak. everybody likes that. Everybody there, likes that. There, yeah. there, there's not so how a do you, person in the United States who doesn't like that. Everybody so how, likes that. So how do you make it better for the hosting city? You don't invite 200 athletes. See, and well, then I think you lower they the tried cost. to do that a little bit by lowering the standard to 237. And, uh, but there's already, I think a hundred people on about 190, 90 something on both sides. I think that have qualified. Right. That, right. And, see, yeah. and, and, and I, when you're asking them to house them for three days, that gets yeah. expensive. See, see, to me, I, I don't think I, I can understand how it can become more cost efficient by making it a smaller race. Right. And so so let's let's cut out anybody that has absolutely no remote chance of making the Olympic team. Let, let's let's make it a very small race. Let's make it 150 people, whatever it happens to be. I have a problem with that because I think that that qualifying for the Olympic trials, even if you know you're not going to be able to make a team, qualifying for the Olympic trials is the primary motivator for an important cadre of athletes, an important group of athletes in our society. Um, they're the ones that could win every single local road race without really trying all that much, but yet aren't nearly good enough to actually be professional. Um, and there needs to be some sort of carrot for those folks. And if you make the the Olympic trials qualifier, qualifier so high and so difficult, then that whole group of semi-elite athletes disappears because they don't have anything to, to motivate them. They have nothing to actually work for. That's sad. So that's sad to say, because I don't have this goal to work for. I don't, I don't run. That's yeah. sad. And the, the product of this is the best runners to represent the country for the Olympics. The product is not the other truly 80 men and 80 women who show up for these races that the cities aren't willing to pay for that put these clubs in a hole that's not the product so let's worry about the product I, I understand what you're saying and maybe there needs to be some other some other goal for them but you can't say well you got under 237 so we're gonna we're gonna invite you knowing that they have no chance if the issue with cities not wanting to host it is that the cost is too high i totally get where you're coming from i would do and i, and I agree with you um but but I think this, the Olympic trials plays an additional role, which is also super important. Besides just selecting the Olympic team, it also plays a role inside the running community of of creating a carrot, a motivator for that semi-elite group of athletes, even though they're never going to okay. actually qualify for the Olympic team. Then do a tier system where you get under 237, mm -hmm. you, you're qualified, but unless you get under 225, it's not paid for. They used to have that. A and B qualifiers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's um, how it was in Houston for sure. Yeah. I'm sure, they, I'm sure yeah. fairness culture says, Oh, we can't do that. Everybody should get a trophy, <laughs> but I, 
All right. That's another, that's another issue. Um, because I don't have any problem with the, everybody gets a trophy and anybody who's ever worn like an Iron Man finisher t-shirt, you don't have a problem with it either, but that's, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm um, talking about, um, I'm talking about for this, I'm talking yeah, about for this, um, this is about getting the, the best team together to, to represent the United States at the Olympics. Mm -hmm. This isn't about the, the two thirty six fifty nine runner, getting their hotel travel and whatever paid for. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there are ways that, that, that we can, or that it can be, the price can be reduced. The cost can be reduced for the host cities. But I think ultimately, I, th I think ultimately what the, the solution is, is that U USATF needs to take on more of the burden themselves. Yes. The, the, the USATF needs to be the governing body of the sport that collects dues, that pays their CEO millions of yeah. dollars every year like they need to take on more of the burden of of staging and financing the trials process it shouldn't fall entirely to the cities where the trials are being staged um i i think that's ultimately the solution and that's the solution that i would like to see them do first but i mean to your point i don't think that this system is ultimately going to change until and this could happen four years from now until they put out for bids and and, and everybody's like nope I don't want to do it. But we're I, right on the edge of that. And the, yeah, the way that this one went yeah, is just yeah, we're, we're, we're as close as you can be to it. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, so that, that might actually that. be the situation four years from now. And I, I don't think that would necessarily be a bad thing. Um, There's a bunch of I told you so's going on in Chattanooga yeah. and Orlando <laughs> right now. There's a bunch of I told you it was going to cost us another $120,000. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do wonder how the owners of Track Shack in Orlando feel. Like they didn't win the bid. Mm -hmm. They basically just... They defaulted to the bid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, That's everything awful. they awful. Everything they said the first day that the announcement was made in the press release, it's like, you guys didn't win anything. You guys are suckers. Mm -hmm. Like it was coming. <laughs> tell us how anyway. you feel. Tell us how you feel, Michelle. Right. Oh my gosh. But, but if it's just right, Orlando it was there anyway, really they, 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 they made all of these concessions despite the fact that that they, they could have said, no, we're not gonna do any of that stuff. The entire course is gonna be on bricks. You know, and, and USATF if, would have had to say, okay. If uh, Max Siegel cares so much about the athletes, I'd love to see that in a year for marathon Olympic trials, he could give maybe half a million of his few million dollar earnings to the athletes so that the host city didn't have to, you know, bear the full brunt of the prize money. Like could USATF maybe negotiate that with the guy who, you know, says none of the athletes are complaining. <laughs> like what world is he living in anyway? Uh, sorry. Uh. Yeah. Well, some of the athletes are complaining. And as we discussed last week, one of them is currently suing USATF for essentially yeah. having a monopoly on the market. So so we'll see. I would also say that I don't agree that it would take no no bids. I think that it would take equal effort of like no bids and also the athletes just not continually uh, tolerating the way that USATF runs this practice. Um, and they'd they'd really have to stand up for what they think is right, you know, across all of athletics, really, at least in the United States. Um, so I'm a big fan of burn it down, but I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> okay. So, so speaking of burning it down and speaking of across all of athletics, this will be the last thing we talk about. So world athletics, which is the international governing body for, for track and field and for road running and marathoning, a lot sort of thing, uh, released this week, their qualifying standards for the Paris Olympic games, right? So Sounds fantastic. The problem with them is that the standards for the Paris Olympic Games are 
really, really high. <laughs> really high. <laughs> um, um, they're, they're fantastically high, so much so that most of the people who end up qualifying for the Paris Olympics are not going to qualify for the Paris Olympics on time. Rather, they're going to qualify for the Paris Olympics based upon their ranking. And the rankings are through this really nebulous kind of manipulative way that world athletics, the system that world athletics has set up in order to encourage athletes to only be able to run their races. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I would say, you know, we can talk specifically as, you know, really highlighted by the men's 10 K and marathon qualifying times, but for the men's marathon, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we could have the top three at the trials in Orlando. And if they're not under that two, eight, 10 mark, we're not feeling a men's marathon Olympic team, are we? So the, the, the official time or the qualifying standard, the entry standard for the Paris Olympics as released by the world athletics, the governing body this week was two Oh eight, 10 for the men's marathon. When was the last time we had a man run two under two Oh eight, 10 in the United States or an American man run under two Oh eight, 10. Probably something Rupp. Yeah, I, I Galen Rupp ran 206 in Prague that year that the weather was so bad in in Boston, right? Um, yeah, I mean, Connor so Mance been a few close. Years. Connor Mance, okay, and... Connor Mance ran 207, didn't he, in, in Chicago. Um, 207, 208, so he's close. And, and some of the, you know, 208 high, 209 low guys, they have maybe a better shot than they did previously because Orlando should, you know, be somewhat flat, but I don't know. I'm I'm pretty nervous that we're going to go back to the days of not having three men in the marathon. Um, like we might be lucky just to have one. They, they do have the option to get in on the world ranking system, but I cannot imagine that there's any 208, 209 guy that's going to be top 100 in the world. Yeah. Um, uh, Connor Mance ran 208.16. So he missed the standard by six seconds um, right. yeah, uh, close, at, at Chicago. So, so yeah, super close there. Um, Galen Rupp ran 206.07 in Prague. Um, and so, so that, that's, that's pretty speedy. I mean, to, to, to give an indication of, of how fast 208.10 is, Meb Kofleski, who won uh, the New York City Marathon, who won the Boston Marathon, um, who, who, uh, is a medalist in the Olympics, a silver medalist in the, the 2004 Olympics. He's never run 20810. Um, and, and clearly he's a very successful, probably one of the most successful U.S. marathoners of all time. Um, yeah, we, we would, we would have a difficult time fielding a team if they went solely by times. If we took our all-stars from the early, well, from <laughs> 2010, we could field a team with Ryan Hall and, uh -huh. well, I guess Meb didn't make it. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's not great. And then that says nothing of the 10,000 meter one, which is 27 flat, which Grant Fisher has run. But, but so, so the point is though, is that, that, here we are in the United States, a, a well-funded country, um, not the, the greatest distance running country in the world by any stretch, but 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 a country with, with all the resources that we need in order to fund an Olympic movement. Um, and we don't have the personnel to qualify for the marathon and the 10,000 meters on the men's side 
by time. And so if we want to qualify a full team, we're going to have to send people specifically to the races that World Athletics wants them to go to in order that they can get higher rankings in the World Athletics ranking system. That feels just so... Exactly what World Athletics wants. Yeah. They want you to come run their gold label races. Right. And they want you to be stupefied by the world ranking system if right. seriously if anyone listening actually really thinks they understand it i would love to hear from you <laughs> like, I, I would love to understand it and i am a numbers person and i find it incredibly difficult to figure out who has to go where to get how many points you know and and what will it take ultimately um but just generally speaking if you look at these other international marathons i mean you've got 20 or 30 guys every single race well under 208 Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. Japan, I mean, you don't, you know, mm-hmm. the Africans, we have we have nobody right now mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just don't imagine that we get anybody in on a world ranking. We'll see. But we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. Yeah. All right, we got to wrap it up. Um, uh, we look forward to being with you all again uh next week for the year-end podcast. Um, before we do that, let's talk final thoughts. Eric, final thought. I just wanted to give a, a shout out, maybe a little jab. Um while you guys were running very hard in a very long race, um, <laughs> I, I did I did race in a 5K with some of my friends uh, from work. Um, <laughs> yeah, you did. And one of my and one of my runners. So um, we ran a the Jingle Bell Jog in in Raleigh. It was run at Wake Meg Soccer Park, which is actually a, a pretty good uh, cross country course. It's off it's off road. Um, this re- race is typically run on the road. Uh, but James, one of my runners, he actually came in third. Uh, he's uh, 42 years old. He ran 1826. Did he beat uh, you? Act- he did. James hey. did beat me. Yep. Um, uh, an employee of mine, Tim, I want to give a shout out to him too. He finished fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he's he's a bit younger than all of us. He's in the under uh, he's in the under 39 group. We'll just say that. <laughs> Uh, Lee Ragsdale, friend of the podcast, uh, he finished, uh, 24th, um, in a time of 2142, but he, uh, did win his age group, <laughs> the over um, 50 age group, because he's in the over 50 <laughs> age group. Uh, I ran, I ran 2031. Um, the disclaimer is I did run eight miles prior. And then after I the race, say, I, I added fast. some mileage to, to get myself up. Uh, it was a 15 mile day. Um, I came in second in my age group because I am in James's age group and the age group winners and the, the podium winners did not get pulled out of their age groups. So, but all in all, we kind of racked up a lot of medals because they just keep <laughs> giving you medals. So the, the four of us got a, a, a picture after the race um, and it was actually pretty funny. But um, the funniest comment of the race was um, another one of our um, our peers from the company walked up to Lee and said, hey, great job, you know, first in your age group. And Lee's response, and this is not verbatim, but this is basically what he said. He said, well, this year. <laughs> and then he said, I really hope they move the race back to the first week in December so that next year, Eric will still be 49. <laughs> happy birthday eric happy birthday man happy birthday um uh michelle final thought i think that next year on the weekend before christmas we should definitely just do a jingle jog it just seemed like a much more pleasant experience than what we did (laughs) you know 20 minutes hard running 
puff and puff a little black would, 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 would you be willing to drive to Raleigh, North Carolina to do it? Uh, if it was that first, what we did at Luckout, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you put 14 hours well, in the car well, to run a 5K. <laughs> I can get to Raleigh in like six, six and a half hours, probably. Yep. Well, needless oh. to say, I will not be running the Lookout Mountain 18 Mile this weekend next year. So, you know, I'll be looking for another race this coming weekend. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm not going back either, but it was good. It was good to try it. So, right on, right on. Thanks for being here, Eric. Always a pleasure. Um, Michelle, thanks for being here. Merry Christmas, guys. Happy Hanukkah to you. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast, on Twitter at pleasantpodcast, or on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, so share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingperformance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel, bluepineappletravel.com, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, and on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, don't forget we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's slayrx.com, facebook.com slash here for SlayRx. That's the number four, SlayRx. Twitter, at official SlayRx. And Instagram, here for SlayRx, the number four, SlayRx. Discount code PLEASANT22. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.